great honor to have David Wilson with us. Um, and as you know, David's uh, book, well, David's been, David's been on my mind since I got here because uh, he wrote the standard two-volume biography of Thomas Darcy McGee. Uh, and that's a wonderful um, resource uh, for the study of a fascinating character and a hugely influential character in Canadian history. Um, and because of his book, he's, he, we, we know about him, uh, although he's not well known enough, I think, in Ireland, but we're doing... Uh, we're certainly happy to promote um, Thomas Darcy McKee and, and David Wilson's work on that. But uh, David is a very prolific researcher and author, um, and we're going to talk to him about his latest book, which is uh, aptly titled Canadian Spy Story. Um, and it does read like uh, a thriller. Um, and even though it's fast-paced and has amazing characters in it, um, it is the work of uh, really deep research. Uh, you can tell that uh, poor David has been in the archives going through papers and trying to piece together a fascinating story, which I think when you hear about the Fenians invading Canada, you kind of think it's, it's the fantasy of a mad uh, Irish film producer um, <laughs> who's created some crazy plot um, and has been rejected by Hollywood because it's too, it's too, it's too fantastical. Um, uh, but David's book shows that it actually happened and the mechanics of how it happened. And it reveals an awful lot about Ireland, the revolutionary tradition, uh, about relations between Ireland um, and Canada and Britain and, uh, and also the United States. It's a, it's a really fascinating book. So a warm welcome for David and thanking him for joining us today. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So what we're going to do is I've got some questions organized and we'll, we'll start, we'll have a little conversation ourselves, and, uh, but I'd love to open it up to, uh, to Q&A. Um, and given the period that's in it, maybe, David, you'd like to kind of describe what's the state of, of the Irish community in Canada in this period, which is essentially the close of the American Civil War. Um, and the period around Confederation. But what does, you know, if you were to describe the Irish community in Canada, how would you do that? Well, most of the uh, Irish in Canada at this time were actually Protestant immigrants rather than Catholic ones, and that uh, is a distinguishing feature between Canada and the United States. Uh, The vast majority had come uh, before the famine, um, and in the 1871 census, if you look at uh, the Irish as an ethnic group, you find that as far as occupation, uh, occupational residence, residency, sorry, residency um, and occupational success, uh, they're pretty close to overall Canadian norms. Uh, but one of the things that's also happened uh, that that census can conceal uh, is that there's been an increased number of Irish Catholic immigrants uh, coming in uh, during and immediately after the famine. And most of those uh, immigrants moved uh, straight through to the United States. Uh, but a significant minority remained. And uh, it's actually within that minority uh, that you find uh, the greatest degree of support for the Fenian Brotherhood. And perhaps that's not altogether surprising uh, because like their counterparts in the United States, Irish Catholic famine migrants in the United States, uh, they brought with them uh, bitter memories of their experiences in Ireland during the famine. 
uh, and whether or not they had been evicted, uh, they knew of people who had been evicted, um, and there was a deep wellspring of anger uh, towards Britain. And we could get into a discussion about, you know, Britain's culpability or lack of culpability uh, for the famine. But in a sense, that's completely irrelevant to what we're looking at here. The perception was uh, that Britain uh, had been complicit in the starvation uh, and death of, um, uh, by hunger and disease of a million Irish people and uh, had been responsible for a million emigrants. And you find this over and over and over again. When John Francis Maguire, uh, who's a constitutional nationalist journalist from Cork, who subsequently became an MP, he was traveling through North America, he was traveling through Canada and uh, the United States at this very time. And uh, he didn't pick up on Fenianism within Canada at all, in fact, but he certainly did in the United States. Um, and one of the people who guided him in this respect was the um, Irish Catholic uh, Bishop of Toronto, John Joseph Lynch, who had uh, served in the United States after the famine um, and had heard similar stories uh, from migrants about just how much anger there was. And I think, you know, you mentioned the, the sort of bizarre um, film director idea of a Fenian invasion of Canada. And we can certainly get into um, the reasons for that invasion and mm. why it's not nearly as bizarre as it first appears. Um, but we can talk about Fenian strategies and tactics, and, that's, and it needs to be done. But what also needs to be understood is that there was this uh, undercurrent uh, of emotion, and the, the and emotion, undercurrent of, of anger. And, you know, the... Um, the conservatives, including people like Thomas Darcy McGee, in fact, uh, would distinguish between the demagogues and the dupes. Mm. They, would view, they would view the Fenian leaders as demagogues uh, preying on the gullibility uh, of, the, of the dupes, of the rank and file. Um, but um, I would argue that that was not the case at all. Uh, I mean, there were demagogues, certainly, among the Fenian leaders, and some were corrupt. There's no question of that. Uh, but... Um, I think for the most part, uh, they were genuinely uh, concerned about finding the best way of liberating Ireland from British rule. And so the, uh, the young servant girls in New York, whom the re detectives reported on, who would give a small amount of their very meager wages to the Fenian Brotherhood, were not dupes, in my mm. view. Uh, they were... Uh, trying to do their best to right what they saw as a terrible historical wrong in the only way they could. And I think some of that, uh, we always, the best evidence for that is in the United States. But I think some of that anger um, and some of those feelings uh, were also, I think, really inevitably part of uh, Irish Catholic famine migration to Canada. There's one other thing I'd say about this, too. I don't want to. I don't want to tie this too closely to famine migration because anyone who studied uh, Irish history, and indeed, if you look at Irish Canadian history, you'll find evidence for this too. Um, Irish uh, revolutionary nationalism uh, long predates uh, the famine. You can date it back at least to the 1790s, uh, possibly earlier, uh, and it didn't need the famine uh, to uh, exist but it was accentuated, exacerbated by the famine. So could you give us a short definition of what, what it was to be a Fenian? Certainly. Um, so the, 
the word itself um, is taken from uh, Irish mythology, um, the Fenian bands uh, who uh, were protecting uh, Ireland from the foreigner, from the Danes. Um, but essentially, to be a Fenian uh, was to be an Irish revolutionary republican, someone who believed that Ireland should be completely independent, that it should be a republic, and of course, although this, this really went without saying as far as they were concerned in the 1860s, should be united. So the goal is an independent Irish republic. The argument is the only way that can be achieved is through violence, is through revolutionary means, um, and thus revolutionary means must be adopted. So the idea then, the organization begins, I'm sorry, this isn't such a short answer. (laughs) (laughs) You're close to a failing score on this question, let me tell you. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Shorter than it could be, though. (laughs) Uh, So it's formed in 1858 um, in Dublin. Canada is the last thing on the mind of the Fenian leaders. Uh, The idea is to organize a secret society in Ireland and then wait until Britain is embroiled in a foreign war. And then you will have the opportunity to strike. And that is extremely important throughout everything we're discussing tonight. The old adage, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. And also helps to explain the strategy of invading Canada to liberate Ireland. Now, um, the, the, in be- between Canada and the United States, you write that being a revolutionary uh, Republican in Canada cut agro- across the grain yep. of society in a way that it didn't in the United States. Could you just uh, illus- uh, expand on that point a little Certainly. Bit? I mean, it was very easy to be a Fenian in the United States um, because you were with the grain. Uh, you wanted a democratic, republican, independent Ireland, and you could say, and they did say, uh, what we want uh, is what you, the Americans, already have. Uh, you had your revolution for an independent, republican United States of America, and really, all you had to complain about were taxes on tea. We had much <laughs> more to deal with than that. So our cause is even more justified than yours. And in fact, they would also say, and did also say, uh, that they were more American than the Americans because some Americans, from their perspective, were backsliding and uh, hobnobbing with the British too much. Um, And this was also said in the 1790s about the Federalists, that they were becoming too British. Uh, That carried through to the 1860s. Uh, And so the, uh, the Fenians regarded themselves as more American than many Americans because they viewed Americanism in ideological terms, Mm. independent republicanism um, and increasingly democracy within that for certain groups. Yeah. Now, we're we're sitting here in Ottawa, which, as we know, was um, created by uh, the building of the Rideau Canal. Uh, the Rideau Canal was was commissioned effectively by by um, the Duke of Wellington, an Irishman, to protect Canada from the United States and invasion, uh, which he had witnessed in uh, well, uh, he was outraged by the eighteen twelve invasion. Um, but put it in putting it in that context, what is the Fenian game plan when it came to those, that wing of the Fenian movement that wanted to invade Canada? What were they trying to achieve? I'll try not to make this a long answer, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
All right, the Fenian game plan was this. Um, so uh, it had become clear by 1865 that revolution in Ireland was not going to happen for two reasons. There was no war, and also um, uh, there's been repressive measures taken against the Fenian Brotherhood in, in Ireland in September of 1865. So uh, the Irish strategy had collapsed. But in the United States, uh, you have Civil War veterans. The Civil War ends in April of 1865. You have large numbers of Irish Civil War veterans, um, many of whom have experienced the famine and have those feelings that I was describing. Um, you can't get them in large numbers across the Atlantic uh, because the Royal Navy rules the waves. There are immense logistical problems. But Canada looks like a sitting duck. It looks like uh, it's very vulnerable. And there could be some real advantages to invading Canada, particularly if you have the tacit support of the United States government, which the Fenians believed they had. Uh, the Fenian leadership, when, uh, when they were debating the strategy of invading Canada in uh, November of 1865, met with President Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State William Seward, and they reported back that when they discussed the question of an invasion, Seward had replied, we will acknowledge accomplished facts. So they believed that the uh, Americans would just look the other way. And they thought if that happens and the Americans look the other way, uh, Anglo-American relations are already at rock bottom because of Britain's tilting towards the Confederacy during the Civil War. Uh, and some, some New York newspapers had already been calling for war with Britain. If, uh, if uh, the United States allows... Uh, Fenians to go into Canada, and if, there are many ifs in this, mm. uh, but if uh, the uh, Fenians can get a foothold in Canada for a week or two weeks, then that foothold will be a magnet for, um, for Irish Americans uh, everywhere uh, to come and join them. In fact, John Francis Maguire, uh, writing about this uh, in 1865, uh, said that he believed that would indeed have happened. Uh, so this was not a misplaced assumption on their part. The Fenians also had other assumptions. They thought that French Canadians uh, would uh, remain neutral uh, or passively support them because, after all, French Canadians, from their perspective, were fellow Catholics trapped against their will in a British Protestant empire. Um, they also believed that Irish Catholics in Canada would... Um, either support them, some might be neutral. None, would they believe, would rise against them. Uh, they were wrong about that, we'll see. But, uh, and, and they believed that they would have significant support within Irish Catholic Canada. And that's actually one of the main themes of my book, the extent to which they were right or wrong about that. Uh, the Fenian underground in Canada is one of my main themes. And, and has hardly ever been explored, mm. so this was uh, a new area. But the, these assumptions, met, oh, they also then thought, okay, so um, uh, this would plunge Anglo-American relations into a crisis. And if the United States and Britain went to war over this, this would be the ideal opportunity that the Irish at home had been looking for. Four years, five years earlier, during the so-called Trent Crisis in the Civil War, when it looked like war between Britain and the United States was imminent, Britain in the winter of 61-62 of, uh, uh, sent 10,000 troops across the Atlantic uh, to support Canada. If that happened again in 66, uh, this 
would be the golden opportunity for Irish revolutionaries inspired by Fenian victories in Canada to uh, seize the initiative. Um, England's difficulty will become Ireland's opportunity and a space will be opened up for revolution in Ireland. If all goes according to plan, at the end of the day, Ireland will be an independent republic and Canada will be part of the great United States empire of liberty. You see, that makes it, that, that certainly sounds a lot better than a Hollywood uh, pitch, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, we do, it, it, it almost sounds plausible. If, the, we were, if we were in a pub, could I convince you of yeah, that? Yeah, I wouldn't be writing any checks, but you might, you, might, you might convince me for the night. But I, it does sound more plausible because I think people forget, uh, from this perspective, just how proximate the, 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 the fear of an American takeover of Canada was. And there was a group of kind of um, hardliners in Washington who believed that Manifest Destiny required of them or that it was going to, that Canada was theirs. They just saw it as a natural expansion. So from the Fenian That's perspective, right. but also it's quite clear that in a way they're duped by uh, Seward and by, by uh, Andrew Johnson, that in fact the United States, uh, they, they as politicians... Uh, have got other things on their mind. So how did the Fenians get this so wrong? Well, they were duped. Um, and this is one of the most interesting things when you look at it at the diplomatic level, mm. uh, that the Fenians are actually trying to embroil the United States in a war. Right? <laughs> so they're, they're trying to manipulate the United States into war with Britain. Um, and as far as uh, Seward and Johnson are concerned, um, they do not want to have a hemorrhaging of the Irish vote from their party to the Democrats. So, um, so they are uh, very concerned about not losing Irish votes. They also don't believe that the Fenians are actually going to carry out their mm. threats. Um, so uh, they lead them to believe. As soon as the Fenians ask for a guarantee in writing, which they do, they mm. don't get it. Of course. Um, and and uh, one of the... Uh, Interesting aspects of this is at the very time in November of 1865 that uh, the Fenian leaders are meeting Johnson and Seward. Um, Seward is meeting with Frederick Bruce, the uh, British minister to the mm. United States, and they're toasting Anglo-American relations, um, and they are uh, cutting a deal uh, that basically uh, the United States is not going to um, stop the Fenians from making their their arguments and uh, and making their arrangements until and unless they get to the border and try and cross over, right. in which case they will be stopped. And then and the British the British said the British part of this was they would not criticise the American government uh, for its inaction. And you get very interesting diplomatic correspondence um, between uh, Washington and London. Uh, over whether or not the Americans are sincere. Are we being played mm. by the Americans? Mm. And Frederick Bruce assures uh, the foreign minister uh, that uh, the Americans are not playing us, that this is actually their position. Then the question actually became, uh, were the Ameri was the American army um, capable mm. of stopping the Fenians? Mm. Because there weren't actually many American troops uh, at the frontier, uh, which became a source of great concern to mm -hmm. the British. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a fascinating reflection because, in a way, the Fenians bring out something that's only evident later, which is the degree of partnership between London and Washington. I mean, it always seems because of the because of the you know the back and forth on the American Civil War, it looks like 
relations are, 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 are more fragile than they are. But in fact, there's a high degree of choreography between, you know, Ottawa, uh, Washington and London. You know more about this than I do, but no, I think... Uh, no, you would. No, you would, because I think, I think there are parallels here. There may be parallels here. Correct me if you think I'm completely out mm. of lunch with this. With the IRA in the 70s, um, uh, who believed that they would drive a wedge between uh, Britain and Ireland... And one of the things that strikes me is the degree to which, although there were tensions, no mm. question about that, but the degree to which um, uh, the British and Irish governments came together, particularly in 1985 with the Anglo-Irish Agreement. So mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's another example of, I think, of um, intentions and consequences being quite different. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think the, the Republican play was always to a much narrower base than they assumed. But this leads to uh, a couple of related questions about the Fenians. A, because you do do some detailed analysis of the extent of Fenian support within the wider nationalist, Irish nationalist community within Canada. But related to that was fundraising, buying weapons, and recruitment of men. So what were the kind of rough estimates that the Fenians who wanted to invade Canada, what do they reckon they needed to, to seize enough of Canada and hold it for this, what they expected, this tsunami of kind of veterans to flood in afterwards. What were their, their rough estimates of men, money, and material? Um, you know, I don't... Do they ever have an estimate? Well, they, yeah, I mean, they knew they needed a lot of material, and, they, and they, they, they knew how many men they needed, and they also knew they weren't going to get them. Because one of the things, this is one of the things that, um, that emerges that requires just a little bit of um, sort of... Or deking, to mm. use the hockey expression. But in 1866, in April of 1866, the non-invasion wing decided to invade <laughs> <laughs> New Brunswick. They decided to attack New Brunswick because the pro-invasion wing was getting all the momentum. And uh, if you could take Campobello Island, uh, which they believed was disputed, Ameri- t- disputed territory between uh, uh, Britain and the United States they were wrong about that, but that's what they believed. They thought they might be able to trigger a war. Um, and this, uh, this, this uh, failed completely, but it also taught some apparent lessons. The American government intervened to stop this invasion, so that was off the cards, off the table. Um, the British and Canadian authorities uh, demonstrated they were prepared to defend uh, New Brunswick, Campobello Island, quite effectively. Um, the, uh, that wing, Fenian wing's funds were exhausted by this. So um, a degree of complacency set mm. in on the part of the British and Canadians. They thought, well, that's it, that's it, it's over. Um, but as far as the, um, the pro-invasion Fenians were concerned, this, was, this does get around to your question. Uh, the, the issue then became, if we wait too long, given this failure... All our support is going to dissipate, so we have to move quickly. And Tom Sweeney, the general who's organizing this, is saying, you know, we need at least 8,000 men to do this, and we need the materiel, we need the ammunitions, we need uh, repeating rifles Mm -hmm. and so on, Uh, and I can't get that um, uh, in in the timeline that you, the political leaders, want. And they have this debate uh, uh, in... um, April of 1866, and it's quite quite clear uh, that they're not going to be successful in Mm. April of 1866. Tom Sweeney makes that quite clear. So now you're faced, if you're a Fenian, you're faced with with a 
uh, a dilemma, the same dilemma that the United Irishmen faced in uh, 1798, the same dilemma that the Young Islanders faced in 1848. Uh, You either do nothing and you bring, in their view, humiliation and shame uh, on yourselves, that you you raised all this money, you talked to talk, but you refused to walk the walk, uh, that you're all bluster. Uh, Or you have uh, a defiant gesture uh, Mm. to indicate uh, that you are willing to kill and die for your virtual Irish Republic. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what they decide to do. So um, they they know that they're not going to succeed. At least Tom Sweeney knows in 1866 that he's not going to succeed. But but losing face is worse than losing a battle. So enter... Uh, John O'Neill. So mm-hmm. you, you might just kind of sketch out this character because he's he, he takes matters in a way. He he becomes the leader, um, and and we have effectively the invasion is Eccles Hill and Trout River and and that. But where does John O'Neill come from, and and what does he do? Yeah, John O'Neill is a, is a key character in this uh, story from the from the Fenian perspective uh, because John O'Neill, I think it's from Monaghan, uh, the Monaghan Cavan border. Um, and came to the United States when he was uh, fairly young um, and uh, joined the U.S. Army, actually deserted from the U.S. Army um, uh, when they uh, fought the Mormon War, which hardly anyone knows about (laughs) in Utah, uh, and then was readmitted uh, during the Civil War. And uh, he... uh, he acquired a, a reputation as a, as a very good guerrilla fighter in the, uh, in the Civil War. And uh, he was not supposed to be one of the Fenian commanders, uh, but he was living in Nashville, and he came up uh, with one of the first contingents of Fenians who came up towards the border once the call went out mm. in 18, June of 18, late May of 1866 uh, that the, the, uh, the invasion was on. And uh, the person who was... And the invasion was supposed to be three-pronged, uh, from Chicago, uh, a group of Fenians would cross over to Godrich, hit Stratford, um, and stop, draw troops there. Uh, from Buffalo uh, into the Niagara Peninsula, uh, this was where John O'Neill was, to be another attack. Uh, but the main attack was going to take place in Quebec. So the, the, these were feints that were designed to draw British troops uh, westward, uh, expose Montreal, uh, and then, in conjunction with Montreal Fenians, uh, the, uh, the main army uh, under Samuel Spear would march towards Montreal. So this was the, this was the, this was the strategy. That and, they had. and these places are not far from here. We're talking about Ogdensburg, Rouse's right. Point, the crossings from Vermont. So when you go through these places, you can Malone becomes Malone, Malone yes. and let's say New York just across there. They they, they become staging. You points blink and you miss it if you go through y- yeah, it now. But yeah. yes, Malone, Altonsburg was a major staging point. So back in 1866, you got Irish revolutionaries wandering around, waiting for rifles and waiting for the moment to strike across. Absolutely, and in 18 and in 1870 yeah. as well, yeah. uh, and in the intervening years, because we're various other plans for invasions. Yes, absolutely. But it, th- there's an element of desperation about John O'Neill. There is. Yeah, he's a mon- look. He becomes a monomaniac. He. Um, uh, he gets the command because the leader of, of the Buffalo contingent uh, does a runner, basically. Um, and uh, this isn't going to work. I'm out of here. And John O'Neill takes over at the last minute. And he becomes the hero of Ridgeway in Irish, for a while at any rate, in uh, Irish revolutionary uh, nationalist circles because he scores a victory. Right? I mean, they defeat 
the Queen's own rifles and the Hamilton 13th uh, at Ridgeway, these uh, under-trained militiamen, Queen's own rifles consisted to a significant degree of untrained um, uh, University of Toronto students who'd never fought uh, battles before. Um, And anyway, uh, this is is hailed as a great victory. Um, And talk about inspiring the people back home, which was one of the original Fenian objectives. It did that. And I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, If you look at the the Nation newspaper, which is a constitutional nationalist uh, newspaper, uh, the leading uh, nationalist newspaper in Ireland, you look at the editorial a week before the Fenian raids and it's condemning the Fenians for this harebrained scheme uh, of attacking Canada and how it's... uh, uh, denigrating Irish, the cause of Irish nationalism, um, and they're highly critical. The week after the invasion, when they learn that the forces of the crown have been defeated, they are ecstatic. I mean, the change is just dizzying. Um, and they, they say this is the greatest Irish victory over the forces of the crown since some say the Battle of Fontenoy of 1745, others say the Battle of Castlebar during the Rising of 1798. So there was an ecstatic response mm. to this at that mm. time. Yeah. Now, John O'Neill, uh, sorry, John O'Neill doesn't give up. He ends up no, he doesn't. bizarrely he, heading off to support the Métis and, and Louis Riel. He, he doesn't give up. He tries again. and He, he, he wants, there's this constant uh, attempt to, to, uh, to get it right the next time mm. uh, and to raise money. And he's always trying to raise money uh, and trying to sort of uh, uh, re-inspire prospective troops um, and, and so one of the things he has to do, and this is a, a dilemma facing Irish revolutionaries in Ireland, actually, as well as in North America, he has to, he has to energize people by promising imminent success, mm. that we're on the cusp of victory. Uh, and this, if you want to raise money, this is how you do it. But you can't have a premature revolution or mm. invasion because then you're completely discredited. The whole thing collapses. So you've got to get that, that balance between we're going to do it. It's going to happen soon. Not quite yet. Maybe a few months more. And at several points he says he'll resign if, uh, if he doesn't get enough money. But he doesn't resign. He's absolutely obsessed with attacking Canada. Uh, and in 1870, tries again. And we could certainly get into how that was undercut by Canadian and British intelligence. But before that, you mm. mentioned the Métis. Yeah. And that's his last gasp. I mean, he's, he's arrested in 1870. He's given a two-year prison sentence uh, for, by the Americans uh, for uh, violating neutrality laws. Um, and at the trial, at his trial, he says, okay, I, I realize now that I was misguided. I was just wrong. Um, there's no chance of a, a successful invasion. Uh, and then a coda that no one noticed, which was, you know, if I ever thought that there were, if I thought there had been a chance or if I thought there was a chance again, I would fully support it. But I now realize there is no chance. Well, he's amnestied by Ulysses Grant in October of 1870, much to the annoyance, and that's putting it mildly, of the Canadian government. Um, and um, when, when he learns about the uh, Red River resistance of Louis Riel in 1870, and when he learns that uh, Riel's tre- uh, tre- Secretary of the Treasury in the provincial, provisional government in Manitoba is actually a Fenian sympathizer, William Bernard O'Donoghue, 
he begins to think, maybe there's a, maybe there's a possibility here. And when O'Donoghue uh, tries to get Ulysses Grant support and fails, uh, he then goes to the Fenian Brotherhood and tries to get their support for an attack on Manitoba, linking up with disaffected Métis. And the idea then is, you can rupture the British North American Empire. You just attack it in its most vulnerable place, uh, Manitoba, you will have the entire West at your hands so that uh, British um, imperialism can be replaced with Irish Republican imperialism, although I didn't quite put it that way, but that's what it would have meant, uh, or American imperialism with Irish Republican help. So... Um, so uh, the Fenians turn O'Donoghue down. They've heard it all before. Uh, O'Donoghue says, I have the support of Grant. He didn't. And, they, and, the, and the Fenians didn't trust, didn't trust him. The leadership didn't trust him. He said, uh, this is just, it's, it's like, it's so easy. Like the Métis are, uh, uh, are revolutionaries. They weren't, right. in fact. Uh, but that's what he says. Uh, it, it's, all we need is um, a few hundred men, uh, maybe 2,000 men, would, well, definitely 2,000 men would do it, but we need a few hundred men to link up with the Métis. We sever the British North American Empire. Uh, you know, just give me your support. He doesn't get it, but he gets it from John O'Neill. John O'Neill never gives up, and uh, in the end leads uh, a small group, as we were saying just beforehand, a group yeah. of about 30 men, uh, towards uh, uh, the Pembina-U.S.-Manitoba uh, uh, border in 1871. And in themselves, they are, are, there's no way 30 men can affect a revolution, although perhaps people said that about Che Guevara in Cuba. But before we get on to yeah, the, the consequences yeah. of, the, fa- yes, of, of yeah. the failure, I mean, the, the main ca- – funnily enough, the, if there are two cast of characters in your, in your book – it is the, yep. it's the revolutionaries, and then it's the informers. Yeah. I mean, the informers are falling off the trees like leaves. I mean, they, every time they lose one, they seem to get another one. Could you? And there, there are two particular characters. There's, there's, there's Clark himself, and then there's the head of the Fenian military operations. Yeah. Could you just sketch in what, what is going on? These, where are these inform, what is motivating these informers? Because they're, they're literally turning up at the British Consulate yeah. in New York. They're sending in letters to the, uh, John A. MacDonald. I mean, yeah. They, they're, they're, they're in a sense, they're driving your plot. because They are. Most informers are useless, though. They're, right? absolutely, they're absolutely useless. That's a um, relief to know. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why, but... <laughs> and they're also scapegoats, actually, right. for failed revolutions and failed invasions, I think. Is but, a, they are, a factor, they are, but they are they are vital characters. Well, they're vital. I tell you, um, Henri Le Caron is a vital character, and William yeah. Montgomery are vital characters. But, but most of the informers um, were... Um, just trying to get money. There were low-level Fenians who were trying to get, trying to con uh, the British consulate in New York, uh, run by a Nova Scotia man, actually Edward Archibald, or trying to con detectives in Canada. And the and the the spy masters knew that uh, they did not trust the vast majority of information that they received, uh, but they also knew that they couldn't be complacent about the information they received. So it's a very difficult position for them to be in. Um, now, uh, informers falling like leaves from a tree, yes, but also no, because uh, that's true after 1866. But believe me, before 1866, the, the uh, British and Canadian secret services – well, it wasn't actually a British secret service, but British, British intelligence and the Canadian secret service – were unable to crack 
open the Fenian Brotherhood. Um, they were taken completely by surprise, in fact, by the, uh, by the raid at Campobello. This, uh, what I've just said runs contrary to everything you'll read in the history books about mm-hmm. it. Uh, I argue in a chapter in the book that uh, historians have been recycling uh, the same myths over and over again about New Brunswick. The authorities were taken completely by surprise in New Brunswick, and they were taken completely by surprise uh, in, at Ridgeway. Uh, the, the, the secret police failed, and I can go into the reasons why they failed. There are many of them. Um, there was w- only one informer uh, who uh, was, and he was extremely valuable and we, at this stage, and um, no one knew he wa- who he was. And everyone, what, Canadian historians then came up with the wrong name for him. They thought it was a guy called Red Jim McDermott, uh, who, who became an informer in the 1880s, and a big one in England. Um, but he wasn't the man. It was a man named Frank Millen from County Fermanagh, uh, a soldier of fortune who actually fought in Mexico against the royalists uh, and offered his services to the Fenians. And... One of the fascinating things about Frank Millen is that he was, he was brought to Dublin uh, in 1865 to uh, use his military skills to assess the uh, possibilities of an attack on Dublin Castle and, uh, and British fortifications in the city. And he wrote, he's very high up in the, in the Irish Republican Brotherhood, as it was called in Ireland. And uh, Frank Millen, uh, when James Stevens, the leader of the Fenian Brotherhood, the, the, the the provisional dictator, as he called himself, of the Fenian Brotherhood, when he was imprisoned briefly, because he escaped uh, in 1865, who became, who was elected the new leader of the Irish Republican Brotherhood? Frank Millen. So we have someone who at one stage was a leader of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, who, who a few months later will become, a refor- become an informer. Why? Because when James Stevens heard that someone else had taken over the Fenian Brotherhood, James Stevens did everything he could to crush him, to, get, uh, to remove him from that position, to get him back to the United States, and then to get him demoted. And in Millen's, from Millen's perspective, what he wanted was two things, money and revenge, but not, I think, in that order. Um, so he was motivated mm, by revenge. revenge. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you look at some of the other informers, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the big one, uh, I think, was, uh, was Henri Le Caron, whom you mentioned. I mean, Charles Clark wasn't an informer. He was a, a detective, yeah, so yeah. a different, different category. Mm. But um, this is an amazing story. This, uh, this, first of all, the, the detective, Charles Clark, is completely unknown. Uh, and this was one of the most exciting things uh, in the research that I did to uncover the, the life and egregious activities of Charles Clark. But the one who's, who's better known, but in some ways not fully understood, and I think not fully researched, was a, a remarkable man from Colchester, England, by the name of Thomas Billis Beach, um, who uh, was you know, an adventurous, slightly rebellious lad who um, ran away from home in his youth, uh, then in his late teens just went off to Paris, just, just seek his fortune in Paris, um, hung out with the American community there, uh, and after the Civil War breaks out, he decides, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go and fight uh, in the, uh, for the Union Army. And he goes over and he decides, this has got nothing to do with being a spy or an informer, he thinks, I'm going to create a new identity for myself, as so many people did when they crossed the Atlantic. Uh, he was going to, uh, you know, brief aside, 
Thomas Paine, revolutionary, becomes Tom Paine in the republic in the egalitarian republic. It's highly significant, but it's more dramatic with with Thomas Billis Beach. Thomas Billis Beach decides he's going to reinvent himself as Henri Le Caron, um, and in uh, in what's described as a faux well, it's been, his, his accent's been subsequently described as. Genuinely French by some people, uh, bizarrely French by others. Uh, uh, I think it was probably a mixture of a of a Colchester accent and uh, some kind of French but he accent. He didn't actually speak French. Didn't well. We don't know that. Well, somebody actually. said he had no French. Some other said he yeah, did. Yeah, but, like, we he's don't gone know around that. a wax mustache yes, and that's and right. Kind of speaking. Yes. Yeah, uh, French I, accent. I, I love I love the idea that he he didn't speak French, but I'm not sure yeah, that's sure, the case. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, he may or may not. Yeah. But in the um, movie, he won't speak French. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And he was actually he was he was targeted for the mission to 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 go to Manitoba with the Métis because they thought he spoke French, but he he didn't go there in the end. He was needed elsewhere. But anyway. And during the Civil War, he befriends John O'Neill, and they fight together, and uh, uh, so they're very close. And uh, then um, he writes this letter to his father uh, in 1865 uh, about, or early 1866, that's right, uh, about John O'Neill planning uh, to be part of an invasion of Canada. Now, Canadian intelligence already knew there were plans to invade Canada, and British intelligence knew that. So this letter wasn't taken very seriously. It was filed away. Uh, you can see it in the National Archives of the United Kingdom. It wasn't acted upon, and there was no real reason to act upon it. It was just another person claiming he knew stuff and that it was already known. But he's back visiting uh, his father in Colchester in 1867, and, uh, sorry, in, uh, yeah, 1867 it was, at the very time that the IRA, the IRA they called themselves that, the IRB in Ireland, um, had tried to, f- to spring a prisoner from Clerkenwell Jail um, by putting a bomb on the wall. And the bomb uh, had been more powerful than anyone anticipated, and it killed uh, almost a dozen people on the street. Our numbers, estimates vary. So there was a massive outpouring of anti-Irish feeling, which actually the government tried to dampen down, interestingly enough, but it was there, and uh, incensed uh, Thomas Billis Beach, and he he reactivated this connection that his father had with an MP, um, offered his services uh, to a newly formed Secret Service Department in Britain. It only lasted a few months. Uh, They agreed to pay him. He would go back to um, uh, Nashville, and he would report on everything that John O'Neill was saying and doing. And, um, and gradually, Thomas Billis Beach rises through the ranks and becomes uh, the quartermaster general and the adjutant general of the IRA, as it was called, the Irish Republican Army. And we find him in 1870, um, before 1870 as well, we find him uh, distributing arms in farms. And you can actually see this in the, in the, in this, in the sources. You see the letters that he writes uh, to his handlers in Canada because he winds up working for the Canadian secret police. He's actually triple-dipping. He's getting paid by the Fenians, he's getting paid by, the, by British intelligence, and he's getting paid by the Canadian Secret Service. So he's doing quite well out of this financially. Mm. Uh, but it's also a very precarious position that he's in because he's, he's planning to, to, to march with the Fenians um, when they invade and says, 
you know, if I get killed, please look after my family. Uh, another major informer, Rudolf Fitzpatrick, we'll get to him, was actually shot in 1870 but survived and was regarded as a revolutionary hero until his death many decades later, an informer all the time. Mm. But, but Thomas Billis Beach, by day, is distributing arms to farmers uh, for the Fenians to be used. By night, he is sending secret messages to his, uh, his spy master, Gilbert McMicken, in Canada with maps detailing the barns that the arms are in, the works, everything. Mm. So uh, the Canadian authorities have detailed knowledge of Fenian invasion plans. The one thing they don't have, let's go mm. a little further with this, the one thing they don't have is the time of the, of the invasion. They knew it was coming, but they weren't sure when. And Thomas Billis Beach, Henri Le Caron, is saying, don't worry, I, I, it'll take two or three weeks to organize, and you will know. John O'Neill sprung a surprise on everyone uh, without telling a soul. As, uh, and there were, there were I- internal feuding reasons for this, actually, I won't get into. But without telling a soul, he wanted everything to be organized within three days, which is a major reason why it failed, in fact. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the Canadians had to scramble like hell uh, uh, because uh, Billis only found out at the last minute what was going on. Yeah. Reading O'Neill's mind was a very, very difficult, difficult proposition. Thing, yeah. Yeah. But again, you have this fascinating dynamic of two war veterans who have fought together, both join a revolutionary army. One yes. of them is absolutely committed to it, and the other one is betraying it every single turn. They're both patriots. That's, yeah. that's the key. I mean, yeah. uh, Billy Speech is an English patriot. Who has quite, he's through. quite racist about the Irish. Oh, actually. yeah. Oh, he's quite racist about he's, – he's more racist about, uh, about black Americans. Um, uh, and, you know, John O'Neill was uh, in charge of a colored regiment during the Civil War. And, and uh, this was actually seen as a demotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, that's, that's uh, what was going on when they met. Um, and um, Bill's speech managed to combine uh, racism against the Irish uh, with racism against blacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and he had utter contempt for the people he was betraying. Yeah. Uh, and maybe you have to if you're going to be a successful informer, but he had utter contempt for them, and there was no chance of him ever uh, having an identity crisis. Yeah. Um, and he would, he would uh, suddenly be called upon to give a, sp- a, re- a revolutionary speech, and he would just, uh, as he put it, he would just parrot everything he'd heard from other revolutionary speeches and think how easily deluded these, these people and are. And he'd have the crowd cheering. He had the crowd cheering, that's right. And, and uh, so he would use the N-word about the Irish. He said, the Irish... Uh, the Irish are even worse than, and then uses the N word. Wow. You know, so yeah, yeah. this is, uh, uh, mind you, mind you, some Irish revolutionaries did use the same word as well. I mean, racism was was endemic in this culture. Pervasive, yeah, yeah. pervasive. Yeah. Now, one of the characters that comes out with this, with with a fair degree of credit, I think it's true to say, is John A. Macdonald. He he's very adroit in that he's he's determined to counter them at every move, yeah. without actually over-egging it. And you make the point in your book that one of the reasons why the Fenian invasions have not registered is because he deliberately played down the fear yeah. about the yeah. Fenian. He was more afraid of them in private and what they potentially could do than he let on in public. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story about this, actually, because uh, uh, it's related to how you, how you come across sources. And uh, the John A. Mac- First of all, there are 3,000 letters in the John A. MacDonald papers from detectives in the field to their handlers to MacDonald and back down the chain. 3,000. It's an historian's gold mine. So when I started this project, which is a good few years ago, uh, 
It was only available on microfilm. And, and, and McDonald's handwriting is very, very difficult to read. Uh, anyone That's why all historians of glasses, by the way. Yeah. Right, indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, and the ones that he wrote himself, you, you don't have the originals. You have the blotting paper copies of, that they were on. So they're oh. doubly difficult. You can't decipher them on microfilm. But when they were digitized, and the LAC digitized them, and unfortunately now the LAC's finding system is almost impossible to use since they upgraded the system. Someone at the LAC uh, really needs re-educating here, believe me. But anyway, uh, online, uh, you can look at them, and you, and you spend maybe 20 minutes or half an hour deciphering a one-paragraph letter, and then it's not, a, it's not particularly significant, and you think, oh, I've got a headache and didn't get anywhere. Mm. But every so often you get something, uh, which makes it all worthwhile. And there was this letter he wrote uh, to a supporter in Stratford in 1868. And uh, it's the Fenians have gone to a large and very dangerous extent in Canada, although I have said as little about it as possible. Mm. And then there are some of them in Stratford, by the way, he says. And then um, uh, I, do, I do not wish to draw any attention uh, to this. Uh, and the reason for that of course, is because he doesn't want to create a backlash, an anti-Catholic backlash, because he knows a lot of magistrates, particularly in rural areas, believe if you scratch a Catholic, you'll find a Fenian. They suspect all Catholics have been Fenians. And I have to, I have to emphasize here, because I'm focusing on a revolutionary minority. My friend and colleague Mark McGowan focuses on the majority, most Irish Catholic Canadians, and I can't emphasize this enough since I'm looking at a minority, most were in the O'Connellite tradition. Uh, they were constitutional nationalists who rejected revolutionary means. They were quite happy to have an Ireland within, to have the same kind of freedom for Ireland that Canada had. You know, its own parliament, but still uh, be mm. part of the empire, uh, a home rule rather than an independent republican position. That was the grain in mm. Canada, not, not revolutionary republicanism. Uh, so, uh, so that's part of the story as well. well so John MacDonald plays it down. He doesn't, he, he, he tempers it as well. He doesn't want them executed. He releases them. Um, yes. It's very in stark contrast to the execution of the, of, you know, the Manchester martyrs and, and that, which kind of ramps things up quickly. Indeed, or actually in stark contrast with the execution of the Plains Cree in the uh, Northwest uh, resistance of 1885. Uh, the contrast, Eamon, is, is very striking and underlines the extent to which John A. MacDonald is operating for pragmatic reasons. Mm. If you look at, at, at the situation after the Battleford Assizes in 1885, 11 Plains Cree... Uh, are uh, sentenced to death. Uh, uh, I can't remember off. I think was, I can't remember off, offhand how many Fenians were sentenced to death in 1866. Fenian prisoners from the invasion. Mm. Uh, small but, numbers, though. I think. Yeah, small numbers in yeah. the teens. Yeah, yeah. It was in the teens, but it was more than 11. Mm. Uh, none of them was executed, um, and none of them served more than a quarter of their sentences. What happened in Battleford? They were all educated. What, oh, sorry, they were all executed. What did uh, MacDonald say uh, afterwards to Edward Duveney, the Indian commissioner in the region? The executions are a good thing because they will teach the Indian that the white man rules. Yeah. Um, and so the contrast is very, very striking. And also, just uh, I have a quotation from uh, MacDonald from that period that is a total opposite one from mm. the one that I've just uh, just given to you about downplaying it. Um, he says that he's exag- he actually says he's exaggerated 
the degree of um, uh, Plains Creek support for uh, the Northwest Rebellion uh, for our own purposes. And he's quite explicit about this in one of his letters. So uh, MacDonald comes out of it quite well as far as the Irish are concerned, not so well out of it when it comes to the Plains Cree. But, but in my view, and people can, can you know, argue about this, the, the, key, the key factor is pragmatism yeah. here, that, that if you were going to exaggerate the Fenian uh, uh, position or actually admit how strong it was, and if you're going to execute Fenians, you would have a really difficult situation on your hands. Mm. I mean, you would not only have uh, uh, orange men and Catholics at each other's throats, uh, you would also strengthen Fenianism in the United States. A degree of anger at the mm. United States would be immense. The British authorities are pressing Canada. Uh, the ambassador, Frederick Bruce, Edward Archibald in New York, they're writing to the governor general, Lord Monk, and they're saying, do not execute the Fenians. Or if you have trials of Fenians, don't have them immediately after mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the, the invasion. Put them off until the fall, until tempers have cooled. And if you do sentence them to death commute the sentences. Otherwise, you're going to have more invasions coming up from the United States than you can handle. So this was the difference. I mean, I fully take all the points around pragmatism and all, but you you still can't quite back away from the idea that this is run through with racism. These are, they're white men, they may be revolutionaries, you know, and as you say, you know, the, the necessity requires us to essentially go after what they at the time called the savages, that this is part of empire building as Oh, you well. mean for the Northwest? Oh, yeah, for the Northwest, but also yeah. in, in terms of the, the kind of easy treatment of the Fenians. It is about not exaggerate, not, not putting fuel on the fire, but there's always that sense is, you know, this is white, they're all white male adventurers, Victorian kind of gentlemen. They kind of understand each other, even though they may be mm-hmm. on different kind of yeah, sides yeah. Of, of the equation. Yeah, all I of this just, is, just say yeah. on this point uh, as well. Um, because I, I think I think this is true. I mean that that uh, it, I'm, first of all, my own reading of McDonald is that if you're looking for racism in McDonald's mm. views, you should look at the Chinese. That is where he is most racist. Mm. His writing his writings about indigenous peoples, he believes them to be culturally inferior. He doesn't believe them to be sort of fixed racially inferior. But you, we we can go back and forth on that. Mm. But um, it's also interesting that when John O'Neill, Fenian leader learns that the Métis, he thinks for, through William O'Donoghue, the, the Fenian who's working with Riel, uh, that the Métis are on board and are the allies of the Irish revolutionaries. He writes, even the savages are with us, he says. <laughs> yeah. And then James, John, uh, John Brennan, Irish-American newspaper reporter who goes up to sound out the situation um, in, in the Red River, uh, reports in the Irish-American newspaper, he's surprised because the Métis aren't really savages. They're mainly white. Yeah. You know, uh, Some of them, Louis Rayleigh, have hardly a drop of, quote, Indian blood in them. So yeah. the racism is everywhere you look. Yeah, you yeah. Know? I have two last questions. Yeah. The first relating to Canada and the second to Ireland. The first question on Canada is, this is all happening against the background to confederation. You know, it, it's yes, the debate around yeah. confederation. And we obviously know that Thomas Darcy McGee is a big player in this. He's ferociously anti, uh, anti-Fenian, for example. We know he pays a price for that. But just looking at Confederation, what you know, the Fenians are called, it's the Green Menace. How does the Green Menace play into Confederation? I mean, for example, yeah. in New Brunswick or more broadly? It's a great question. And this is the way it was always framed, right? Uh, when, I came into the, when I came into the field... Um, the, the, there were two frames. One was 
the Fenians are not cases. It wasn't put quite like that. But Donald Creighton, the historian, came very close to saying that. He described them as grandiloquent clowns and vainglorious incompetence. Uh, in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, uh, C.P. Stacey, writing a biography of John O'Neill, finished it by saying, John O'Neill cannot have been a man of much intelligence for the idea of liberating Ireland by attacking Canada was fundamentally stupid, quote-unquote. <laughs> yeah. So that was one frame. And the other frame was the Fenians' contribution to confederation. Uh, and I wanted to get away from that, actually, right. and, and, and look at uh, other questions like civil liberty and state security and what happens when you have a revolutionary minority mm. with an ethno-religious group uh, how do you deal with the revolutionary minority without alienating the moderate mm. majority? This, these were the sort of issues I and was involved in. And two questions today. But, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. very much so, which is, which is what prompted me to write the book, actually. Yeah. Those are the questions I started with. Uh, but going back to the question of, of course, of course, the invasions are in there and the Confederation is in there. They can't not be in there, which, which forced me to, to consider this question. And, um, and, and my view is that as far as... Canada West, Canada East, so Ontario, Quebec is concerned, the Fenian raid at Ridgeway made no difference whatsoever. Mm. Uh, no difference. Uh, that Fenian is, sorry, Confederation was already a done deal. Before, uh, there was a consensus for it before the Fenians invaded. New Brunswick is a different story. Um, the, uh, uh, the failed attempt to take Campobello Island. Uh, is a different story because New Brunswick had a government at that time that was anti-Confederation, and uh, an election was coming up. Uh, the the attempted uh, Fenian invasion of New Brunswick took place weeks before mm -hmm. an election, and the, and John A. Macdonald was pouring a lot of money into the into the pro-Confederation forces. Uh, Darcy McGee was actually linking up. Uh, Confederation meant everything. Um, and then, and in the course of this, the Fenian threat of invasion, uh, the attempted invasion, and then the arguments used uh, by the Confederate forces, uh, uh, that the Confederate supporters, I should say, uh, that uh, you need, we need a united Canada uh, to defend against this kind of threat emanating from the United States. Mm. Uh, and, uh, oh, and they try and tar all anti-Confederates with the Fenian brush. Right. So it becomes a factor in the, in the election. And then the question is, uh, to what extent was it um, uh, a critically important, was it or was it not a critically important factor in the election? And we don't know because we don't have an alternative uh, narrative. narrative. Yeah. Uh, Donald Creighton makes the case, made the case, that um, the New Brunswick uh, government was already been uh, driven apart by its own internal contradictions um. and wouldn't have won the election anyway. Peter Toner uh, argues that it was of fundamental importance. And, uh, you know, it's impossible to say who's right. Take your pick, yeah. yeah. My last question before opening it up to Q&A is on, on, on the, the Fenians themselves in Ireland because and we've seen through the invasion of Canada that the chances of success are very small. They're driven by revenge, by a, a almost desperate desire to just take a stand um, in the hope that this will become catalytic. It fails in Canada. Um, but the same organization in Ireland, the IRB, the Fenians, effectively are you know, a covert, almost Bolshevik-style group within the volunteer movement, and they engineer the 1916 yes. Rising. The 1916 Rising is a 
is 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 doomed to fail in many ways, although it's more successful militarily than than people generally give it credit for. But it becomes exactly what the Fenians uh, in Canada imagined, a hugely catalytic event. Yeah. So in a way, the Fenians finally, you know, they got it right. And because of 1916, you could argue that Canada was the future Ireland never had. But the Fenians do get it right in 1916. I, I mean, you can argue, oh, it was the executions and all that. But one way or the other, the the, the kind of um, the Fenian approach, however constrained by all of the difficulties that they have about fundraising and action and where, where we strike, ultimately, they, they kind of, they achieve what they want to achieve. I think there's a very interesting common factor there, um, and and that is the apparently impossible. Um, if you fail, um, as the Fenians did, then uh, you know your your place in history is not a good one. Yeah, uh, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, you know, you think of, of uh, Owen uh, McNeil's view on the on the 1916 yeah. rising yeah. that it was. Basically immoral because having launching a uh, a rising that had no chance of success uh, uh, was not only counterproductive it was it was against all the rules of war and mm. conflict and, mm. and and came the leader of the volunteers coming out very strongly against it which is why it was countermanded yeah, yeah. the order was countermanded and the, was, my the, grandfather was off. out for 1916 yeah. he, and he was told halfway there go home yeah, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's a disaster and he went yeah. home yeah. So but the still, no, so, so it still it's, is a... It's the impossible revolution. That's, yeah. that's actually a very interesting point because um, the, the Canadian authorities just... They kept saying, we don't know what these guys are going to do because we're trying to, we're trying to uh, uh, approach this in rational terms. And in rational terms, they have no chance of success. And you can say exactly the same for 1916. They have no chance of success. And, um, and out of out of defeat came victory in that very different context. Yeah. So then the issue is the context and uh, the contextual factors that enable that to happen. And the context was never right for that happening in Canada, yeah, in yeah. my view at any rate. Yeah. It, was, it was never going to be successful. Well, it's kind of the old Shakespeare quote, what be a traitor? Because if a traitor is successful, he's the king. You know, so yes. it, it, it's kind of the triumph of victory at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, whereas I think Ruth Dudley Edwards said about 19th King, the triumph of, of failure. Yes. You know? Another of my favorite quotations actually mm. comes from uh, Lord Acton, um, not quite sure how, exactly how relevant it is, but the role of historians here: first, the assassin with the dagger; second, the historian with the sponge. <laughs> <laughs> We're always cleaning things up, you know. Yeah, I mean, I was I was tempted to quip that you know the the it's not the journalists who are the first historians; it's the informers, because so much of your book is inspired by you know the, the letters and so on. The book that in, that you ended up finishing, how different is it from the book that you imagined when you started this all those years oh, what ago? What a question! But very different. Uh, very, um, the, the book stemmed from my, my Darcy McGee biographies, which were completed in 2011. But in truth, as I was writing volume two of Darcy McGee and learning about the Fenian underground in Canada, because this is really how I found out about it, mm. I thought, I don't want to be writing volume two. I want to be writing about the Fenian underground in Canada. <laughs> this, is, this is an amazing story, a sort of set of stories. One of my uh, former graduate students described the book as a bit, I love this description because uh, it's flattering. But <laughs> he described it to, like uh, it says, it's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting, where you've got all these kind of weird things going on in the yeah. corner, but it's all, but, it, but it fits together at the same time. So there's a lot of weird stuff in this book. A lot of weird uh, people. A lot of weird people. Yeah. Uh, I had surprise after surprise after surprise writing this book. Uh, McDonald's view position actually surprised me among other things. Um, I had I. I was so surprised to learn uh, that 
the founders of the Fenian Brotherhood in Toronto, uh, that, that many of them went on to become leading Irish revolutionaries uh, uh, in the Atlantic world. Uh, if you're going to be a Fenian in Orange Loyalist Toronto, and by extension, Orange Loyalist Canada, you're going to be a very serious one. Yeah. Um, so, but, but so many things. Uh, the, the New Brunswick story surprised me because I, and I spent, this is going to be a chapter that I was going to spend six weeks on. I was spending six months on it because I thought, the historians can't have got this wrong, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, uh, and then I found myself trying to prove negatives, which is always impossible. Yeah, yeah. But I was looking for any source that might contradict the uh, views that I developed, mm -hmm. and I and then I found more and more sources that actually Confirm. confirmed them. Yeah. So it was a very exciting uh, detective story in itself, the historian as detective, and mm -hmm. that's what I that's what I think I became in yes. the course of writing this. A detective, yeah. indeed. Let's open it up to questions. Sure. I know, Tim, you have a question. This is marvelous, Professor Wilson. Thank you, Tim. I'm so curious about your sources, and you, you, it's a really nice segue into it. So you mentioned these 3,000 yep. letters from McDonald, um, a treasure trove that's marvelous, presumably more focused on Canada West. Yes. As Attorney General and, and Co-Premier, what about your sources for, for Quebec? Well, what a great so the question. Qu just the question is, yeah, yes. about the, the nature of your sources. And, yeah, yeah. And, and so most of the sources I have are in Canada West or Ontario. What about Canada East? And uh, it's a great question because um, uh, we, have, we had two uh, spy masters, right? We had Gilbert McMicken in Canada West or Ontario and Frederick William Ermattinger, followed by Charles Corsol in present-day Quebec. And uh, McMicken reported to MacDonald. So those 3,000 letters mainly consist of detective reports to McMicken, up to MacDonald, and back down again. What about uh, people reporting to a messenger who, who himself reported to Georges Etienne Cartier? Cartier's papers were destroyed in a fire. And, and, so, and it's very frustrating because you know after 1866, the, mom the momentum shifted. Toronto had been the pacemaker up to 1866. After 1866, Montreal, and to a lesser extent, Quebec City, were the pacemakers. Fortunately, there's enough bleed-through of sources uh, that were sent to MacDonald uh, those, among those 3,000 uh, letters. Uh, but also, and this is particularly interesting, uh, another great surprise and great find I'm at the New York uh, Public Library looking through Tom Sweeney's papers. Now, he's the, he's the architect of the invasion plans for 1866. And they've been published, but, but not everything in those papers was published because some stuff related to Canada. And really, who cares about Canada? You know, so <laughs> no, we're more interested in the United States, so we're not going to do that. Well, they were letters from um, uh, the founder of the Fenian Brotherhood in Montreal, Francis Bernard McNamee, to a Mr. Christian, which may have been a code name, I don't know, um, in which he says, these were written in, um, uh, in May of 1866, or April, April, May of 1866, um, and he says, we're in a full mess here with Fenianism. Uh, Father Dowd is preaching against the Fenians. Darcy McGee is uh, doing his stuff against the Fenians. Um, but we have a plan. Uh, we are, we're going to uh, press for a militia 
that will, uh, an Irish militia to fight the, the Fenians. We'll get training, we'll get arms, and then as soon as the Fenians cross the border, we're going to turn against uh, the Canadians and uh, become part of the invasion. We'll be well trained. You think, this is gold. And, but then it's followed by another, he writes two letters like this, and then there's another letter from uh, someone who describes himself as a close friend of, um, uh, of Francis Bernard McNamee and says, we're getting very suspicious of, of McNamee. He's hobnobbing quite a bit with, uh, with Cartier and we think, he might, we think he might actually be a double agent and that he might, he might actually be uh, writing to you, pushing for a very strong and militant strategy. Don't trust him. You know, uh, I, I write this as one of his best, <laughs> best friends. friends. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> but, but you get things like this coming out to give you a sense of what's going on in Montreal. And you know from other fe- from, from the Sweeney papers, you know that Richard Slattery for, oh, wait, this is another surprise. There was a Fenian Secret Service, and they called it that. They called themselves the IRA, they, and they called it a Fenian Secret Service, and they were funded, and they had their own uh, uh, sleeper agents in Canada. There's no, it's all documented in the Sweeney Papers, uh, and uh, they ran emissaries to Canada, like Richard Slattery, who went to Quebec City. And he describes in detail the, you know, the plans and the number of people he brings into the organization. So you get sources like this from outside the Macdonald Papers uh, that can be very useful indeed. And then there's also sources going – there was a, there was a, a, a Thomas Doyle, uh, an, uh, an Irish policeman who was sent over to New York to be a, uh, a spy uh, who, who, with great uh, originality and imagination, signed – his letters under the pseudonym D. Thomas, Thomas Doyle. Uh, but he was sending stuff back. Uh, and um, we also, this is very important here, we've not mentioned this, but he, he's the invisible man in this story, a man named Rudolph Fitzpatrick, uh, who uh, became an informer and uh, worked in the second floor of Fenian headquarters as, uh, in the Foreign Affairs Department and knew everything that was going on. And... Um, and he was sending information to MacDonald, uh, up directly to MacDonald, uh, about um, the, uh, the emissaries from Canada who were coming to New York and uh, the people from Toronto, but from Quebec City, from Montreal, and from Ottawa, actually. And the chief um, organizer, the chief, the chief Canadian organizer of the Fenians was an Ottawa man uh, by the name of Ralph Slattery, who also went by the name of Michael Slattery. It took me a long time to figure out they were the same person. I mean, well, a lot of research did go into this there's, book. There's the detective bit again. That's yeah. right. But, yeah. uh, and I actually found, uh, so, so just a brief aside, like, I have the book with me upstairs. I can, I can show you this if you're interested. But um, there was a photograph of Ralph slash Michael Slattery that was the size of a postage stamp that was distributed to the detectives in the field because they knew, they knew he was active in Canada. They knew because of Rudolph Fitzpatrick in the New York office. Uh, um, and, um, and in the McDonald papers, there is a photograph uh, from one of the detectives. And I was able to get it blown up. Uh, it's not very good quality. And the press, McGill-Queen's press initially refused to, to use it. They said the quality is too bad. And I, and I 
I adopted a very reasonable approach. I screamed, stamped, hollered, <laughs> shouted, tore my ha- hair out, and they put it in. And I think it's a great photograph. It's, I think and, it is a great photograph. Yeah, yeah it really you, yeah. catches the man. Yeah, looks and like a hard the, man, doesn't he? He does look. Good. I wouldn't cross him, <laughs> but I mean, um, that's one of the delights of the book is you get these illustrations of these characters, and and also all the, and things the entire Fenian cell. We have a picture the, of the whole lot of them. Yeah, that's there, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any they, other? Sorry, question yeah, at the back. Oh. Yeah. Word so just a yes, yeah. Okay, word. So the question is, yep. just so we can, we can catch it, is would you define the Fenians as as in modern parlance terrorists? They were actually defined as terrorists at the time by uh, the word was used uh, in Britain, uh, not in Canada as far as I can tell, but it was used. Uh, and uh, um, uh, one historian um, whose name has just gone out of my head, uh, but will come back to me in a moment. Uh, wrote uh, a book in which he describes them as terrorists. As they say, one man's, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Um, uh, if, if terrorism means um, assassinations and, uh, and uh, sort of random attacks on civilians, they weren't doing that. Uh, now in in Dublin there was an assassination circle and they hit policemen. You can certainly I think that would certainly qualify as terrorism by most definitions. Uh, this was run by a man named Tom Kelly, who was uh, uh, quite an intimidating character uh, for, his al- for his allies actually as well as his enemies. Um, but um, John O'Neill's response to the assassination of Darcy McGee is very interesting. Uh, I can, I can certainly get into the assassination of Darcy McGee because there are many more layers to this story than people realize. Um, and the man who was uh, found guilty of assassinating McGee, I think, was probably uh, fairly high up in the Fenian organization. Uh, there's some, some informer evidence, good evidence, I think, to suggest that. But it wasn't an authorized Fenian hit. It was, it, it, it was not ordered from New York. And we have good, solid informer uh, and spy information on that. And O'Neill, when he learned about the, about the assassination, he repudiated it immediately, privately and publicly. This is not how we fight wars. It's army to army. It's honorable. So for, for O'Neill, uh, it was an honorable fight between armies. Uh, now, for uh, the, the, uh, the parents of Canadians who were killed at Ridgeway, it, they didn't use the word terrorism, but you read their letters, and they're, they're both heart-rending letters about really nice, promising young men who are killed. Uh, and uh, just as Athenians were built on revenge, you know, they want revenge. They want O'Neill extradited. As far as they're concerned, or they, they want the Americans to extradite O'Neill as what we would now call a terrorist. Mm-hmm. So from their perspective, this was not honorable war. Uh, there was no country versus country. Uh, it was, and from McGee's perspective... Uh, this was not honorable war. This was a group of marauders um, uh, who believed they were fighting in a righteous cause but were actually um, uh, doing the very reverse. They were damaging to Canada, damaging to Ireland, damaging to everybody. As far as McGee was concerned, he would have had no problem describing describing them as terrorists. I think as historians, we need to be a bit more judicious, and we can do that because we're more distanced from it. Um, it's easier in that sense to discuss the 1860s than it is the 1960s and 70s. 
Uh, it's hard for me to argue that putting uh, on to have car, car bombs uh, with no warnings is very hard. I would never argue that wasn't terrorism. I couldn't do that. But maybe historians in a hundred years' time will have a more distanced view. Might not be a better view, but it'll be a more distanced view. So what I'm saying is, this, especially in relation to to um, the uh, the parents of the of the lads who who died. Um, no wonder they viewed this as a form of terrorism. No wonder they did. The close, and, and, and sometimes distance is a danger. Uh, I remember a, like a, a, a colleague of mine, and I, this, this, uh, this is a bit further from our field, but I think it's a very important point. A co- friend and colleague of mine, Liam Kennedy at Queen's Belfast, uh, was criticized, had written a lot on the Troubles, and he was criticized for, for um, uh, when he wrote about the Irish War of Independence, of presentism, that he was reading back to the Irish War of Independence uh, the violence of the Troubles. Um, and his response to that has stayed with me. It was, it can be a disadvantage, but it can actually be an advantage, because when I was growing up, he said, uh, it was all unreal. Violence was abstract. It was, uh, uh, you know, it was just, you had songs about it and poems about it. Uh, and the Irish Revolution was something you would deal with in abstract terms. So I cannot do that now because I know what revolutionary nationalist violence and indeed loyalist violence, he's, Liam Kennedy has fought against both, written against both, I know what they're like. Mm. So mm. it can be an advantage. So, no, well. it's a very good point. And, yeah. and I would say about your book, it's very immersive of the time. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel distant. It really does give you an insight into... Can I have the time? Two more questions. I know, yeah, I'm uh, constantly time. So, sorry. uh, Of all of the characters that you have researched in your historical, uh, your your studies of history, whom do you believe really created the country we know as Ireland today? In three sentences or less. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, there's not many people can leave me speechless, but you've just succeeded in doing that. Um, I, I, uh, the makers of, of modern Ireland, it's one of those things you have to do retrospectively. You know, you, you go back in, with hindsight. Um, and, uh, I mean, there are, there are, for better or worse, there are some, there are some really key figures in, in, in that. And... Uh, First of all, one thing about the premise I would, I would question a bit, and that is we tend to deal with great men, right? And so was it Wolf Tone? Was it Daniel O'Connell? Was it uh, Charles Stuart Parnell? Uh, was it Paulie Pierce? Was it Michael Collins? Mm. Was it Dev? Um, and you can make a case for each of those, uh, but... Um, there's a lot going on beneath the surface. You know, there are a lot of popular movements, uh, uh, popular pressures. There are social changes. There are economic changes. Uh, there are British government policy changes. You know, the land question is basically settled after the Windham Act of, 19, Windham Act of 1903. So that's, God, that's been massive social revolution that occurs without the political revolution. It was crucial in the making of modern Ireland. Uh, so... Um, there are many, many factors beyond the great men or men you, we might not, they may be great, but we may, not, we may or may not like them uh, behind a question like this. This is why David is such a good historian. He wasn't going to answer that question. No way. But anyway, I will, I will answer the question. I will say, I will, I will answer the question. The, the, the guy who made modern Ireland was Dermot McMurray. 
the King of Leinster invited in the Normans. It all started then. <laughs> anyway, sorry, we have a, we have a question down there. <laughs> Sorry, I missed, I missed your question. Uh, in your opinion, without the Fenian race yes. in the 1860s, uh, is it galvanize all the yeah. British in British North America? Does Canada, as we know it, exist? So it's kind of a psychological question about the, how the Fenians yeah. impacted on Canadians' yes, perception yes. Of, of themselves, if I got you right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, ultimately, yes, I think it would. You know, I think uh, it, it, would, it would exist pretty much in the same way as it exists now without the Fenians. This goes against the grain. It's not something you should say in front of an Irish audience, but I believe this to be true. Um, and that, in a way, is not the point of the book that I've written, uh, which I would just emphasize. It's, that's not, those aren't the questions I'm asking. Um, the questions, what I'm, what I'm doing or trying to do is to explore a lost world, a hidden world of Irish Canada. The, the, everyone focuses on the constitutional nationalist majority and loyalism, but there's a whole different undercurrent, and it's, and I, and it's much stronger. It has gone to a, a much greater, a, a much to, a, to a larger and, dangerous, and more dangerous extent than I've ever said. MacDonald, right? Mm. Um, it's this world I wanted to explore. It, and then it became the world of uh, and exploring that the world of detectives and the origins of the, of the of of intelligence in Canada the secret service has its origins here in the 1860s that's what i wanted to explore and then from that the relationship between civil liberty and state security so what i'm actually trying to do here is say please read my book but the Fenian raids did not actually make very much difference in the end to the history of Canada uh, and I would right. say, yeah, no, it's a great question to end on. And I would say, though, that in reading the book, you're placed in a position where you've got so many perspectives on what's motivating people because they all, through your book, are responding to this, whether it's a yeah. Lynch as a, as, a, as a bishop, whether it's a moderate nationalist, whether it's John A. Macdonald, Confederation, Anglo-American yeah. relationships, the formation of the Secret Service and Secret Police, yeah. how it affects policing. It just takes in an awful lot just almost incidentally you get this slice into a really formative period and and the one and, and the other abiding point which which again i think the book underlines is the extent to which the traffic across the atlantic is constantly bouncing off whether it's ideas or strategic interests or people traveling back and forth you get this and i, I made that point earlier in, in, in our conversation beforehand it's a really important book from an irish historiographical point of view because it widens out the field of play of the Fenians mm-hmm. in a way that, that's really important. But David, thanks so much for a fascinating talk. Thank you. And for coming to see thanks you. very much, everybody. Thank you. It's great to do this. Thank you very much. Thank you.